This episode of The Tome Show <coughs> and Dice Monkey Radio is brought to you by Continue Magazine, a quarterly magazine celebrating all of gaming culture. And listeners like you, thanks for using the Tome's Amazon store. Welcome to the Tome. <coughs> and Dice Monkey Radio. Yes, and that too. The Tome is a D&D news, reviews, and interview show. And Dice Monkey Radio is a gaming show about everything that I, the great Dice Monkey himself, loves about the hobby. In this special episode, Mark and I are teaming up to talk to New York Times bestselling author R.A. Salvatore about his latest book, Karen's Claw. It turns out by coincidence that Jeff and I both independently arranged to talk to Mr. Salvatore, and we're both about to release the episodes at the same time, so rather than give you two episodes coming out of Tome Show Productions at once, we decided it was just time for a team-up. That's right. So for this episode, you get a Dice Monkey Radio slash Tome Show combination episode, including two interviews with R.A. Salvatore. Mark, what did you and Mr. Salvatore talk about in your interview? Well, we talked a bit about uh, the development of Drist, uh, where he came from. We talked about the book, Karen's Claw. Uh, we talked about the sword itself and talked about his writing process. Excellent. And that sounds uh, quite a bit different from a lot of the things that we talked about. This was my third interview over the course of three years, I think it is, with uh, Mr. Salvatore. Um, and I've read all of the books, and so I had a lot of background with it and, and a lot of follow-ups from previous conversations I've had with him, integrating his stories into the larger realms and, and a little bit of his um, his researching process. Um, I, I even challenged him a little bit on, on his characterization of certain things um, and questioned him on some of the um, controversial elements of the story. Uh, and, and over the course of, of the interview, I actually came to a bit of a, an epiphany with the character of Driss myself. Uh, left me appreciating the character and the story all the more. In fact, I wrote a bit about it over on Temporary Hit Points, which will so be I linked guess the in the only, only question left to answer is which interview are we going to give the people first? Well, I'm doing the editing, so uh, I get to pick, and I pick this one. Welcome to a special episode of Dice Monkey Radio. I'm your host, Mark Meredith, and I'm joined today by Mr. R.A. Salvatore the prolific author who's written more than 62 novels and over a dozen short stories for various pub publications. His books have sold more than 10 million copies worldwide. Welcome, Bob. Good to be here. 62 novels? Really? It's that many? <laughs> that's that's what I saw on, uh, on Wikipedia. That Wikipedia yeah, that's is, probably wrong. It's known to be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the 50s, I think. At oh, least. okay. So it might be 62. Yeah. I, I don't count anymore. Yeah. <laughs> You've been really, really busy. There's a lot of, a lot of books out there that you've written. It just looks like about at least one every year for the last twenty years or so. Oh, at least. But here's the thing: you got to understand is that a lot of those books are in the same series. Yeah. You know, like there have been really in Forgotten Realms, there have been more than thirty. If you count the Stone of Tomorrow books, which I do, they're Dark Elf books, and the Clara Quintet, there are more than thirty in that one alone. And then Demon Wars, there were 11 books that I wrote in that in two different series in that world. Mm. So the way I look at it, like writing the Dark Elf books, for example, it's more like writing the new season of a television show. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. writing a book because I'm not – I'm not – 
you know, I may be introducing one or two new characters, but the core has been the same since 1987. So you don't have to spend all the time trying to figure out what the characters are like and things like that. Exactly. And, or, you know, coming up with, it, when you write a book and you're, and you're starting from scratch and you're going for the first one, you have to you, you figure out what the composition of the good and bad characters are going to be. And that will change as you're writing the book. But it, that takes, that's one of the toughest things about writing a new book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Dark Elf books, like, you know, this one, Karen's Claw, is the third book in the series. My protagonists and antagonists are all lined up. Yeah. So it's like writing a television. I, I think of it more like writing a television series than writing a um, writing a new novel every year for the Dark Elf. Yeah, that makes sense. So that allows me. So, you know, the numbers get really high, but the truth is that um, it's doable. Yeah. <laughs> it's exhausting, but it's doable. Oh, yeah. Uh, now, today we're talking about Karen's Claw. That's your latest novel. This is the third in the Neverwinter trilogy, correct? Uh, it's not going to be a trilogy anymore. They, oh, okay. Well, I finished the next book, the one that's coming out next March, mm-hmm. and it fits so well with the themes of this one, kind of ties up a lot of loose ends, that we decided to put that book in with the Neverwinter grouping. You know, these these groupings are the subcategories of books, the transitions, the Hunter's Blades, the Neverwinter. That's mostly done by the brand brand and marketing teams to help the readers keep it straight. Oh, okay. The next book makes sense to be part of Neverwinter, and the computer game will be coming out around that time, too. So it just makes sense to do it as part of the Neverwinter group. But, yes, this is the third of four. Now, what's the uh, tell us a little bit about the book. What's the general plot? What's dressed up to this time? Well, in the first two books, the first book was uh, really set everything up, and it, it spanned a lot of time, and it, it, it kind of put Dritz and his friends in a weird place um, with really big things going on that had to be corrected. So it, it became a quest by accident, if you will. But at the end of that book, because of a new companion Dritz had and because it was the right thing to do, led logically to Neverwinter, the second book, which was a revenge book. Mm-hmm. And out of Neverwinter, because of yet another old friend or enemy or whatever that Dritz discovered, and because of his new companions, it became an even more important revenge quest that has a side twist on it um, regarding a powerful sword named Karen's Claw. So, you know, the road was laid clear before them at the end of the last book mm-hmm. and now they just have to walk down it and there are a lot of surprises ahead excellent it's a it's a really really great book um i got an advanced copy and um i gotta read through it it's i really enjoyed it thanks i had a lot of fun writing this one good and drist is a really really busy drow he's been all over uh, the forgotten realms um what is it that keeps drawing you back to him well, a couple of years ago when I was writing the uh, collected stories of the Legend of Dritz, I, was, I wasn't writing the stories. I was writing the – I was putting them together for the anthology. These are all the stories I would written in the Forgotten Realms since, you know, in, in the last 24 years essentially. And as I was reading those stories to annotate them because I did like a one-page introduction to each story. When I reread the stories, they threw me right back in time to where I was emotionally, what I was thinking, what I was trying to accomplish as a writer, and in my own personal life, back uh, when I was writing that particular story. 
And what I realized is that what my writing has is for me, and I never really thought of it this way before then. It's much. If you ever watch Cosmos, that old wonderful series by Carl Sagan on PBS, which yeah. is like a thirteen-part series. Cosmos Sagan called it a spiritual journey, and I feel the same way about the, these books because what I'm doing in my writing is I'm just asking myself questions and trying to figure out the answers, and not questions about where does the dragon live or how are you going to kill the dragon, but questions about why you're going to kill the dragon. Mm-hmm. And that's what this has been for me over all of these years. And so when I look at it that way, growing bored with these would be growing bored with my own life. Mm-hmm. And I'm not. Mm-hmm. And then the second part that just came up this year for me is what I really see, particularly the Dark Elf books as, is a tie to a different time. I started writing these books in July of 1987, so we just passed the 25th anniversary of when I started writing The Crystal Shard. Yeah. And that was a different world. You know, there was no internet per se. There was, but there wasn't anything anyone had access to. Yeah. Um, computer games were rudimentary and usually text. You didn't have cell phones. You weren't texting your friends. Mm-hmm. And one of the joys of that time period for me and a lot of other people was our weekly or bi-weekly or tri-weekly or seven days a week gaming sessions. <laughs> yeah. And I think of the Dark Elf books and the Forgotten Realms as a as kind of a nostalgic tie back to that time. Yeah, I, I, I found uh, that uh, it's it's harder and harder nowadays. It's interesting with the technology, it's harder and harder to get people together to sit down and play. Yeah. And I mean, when you used to get people together to sit down and play, it was very easy to weed out the people who were going to ruin the experience. Mm -hmm. Um, But you play online now and you know, you got to shut your microphone off and your headphones off half the time because you just can't stand what you're hearing Mm -hmm. from the, you know, and I mean, I'm 53 years old and if I wind up in a gaming group with a, you know, a uh, wisecracking eight-year-old. <laughs> they have no desire to do that. Thank you very much. So, you know, I, I miss, and that's why I still play D&D, by the way, right there. Oh, yeah. Now, Drist is, um, he's a really complicated character. Um, he started off as, um, he started off as a secondary character to original trilogy. And then, yeah, for about two pages. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was it that ended up making it so that he was the one who you decided to focus on rather than, than the other characters? Yeah, he, he came into being off the top of my head under duress from my editor who needed a sidekick for Wolfgar. Mm-hmm. I was at work, and and off the top of my head, I said a dark elf, or it was a black elf, I said, because that's what they were called back then. And there was a long pause, and she said a drow, and I said, yeah, a drow, a drow ranger, that would be cool. She could draw a ranger. And this was before. I mean, there, there weren't good draw running around. There weren't. I mean, they were thought of in the game. They were in the monster manual. They were thought of as, you know, one of the coolest monsters that you could have in a D&D game. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, draw a ranger. No one's done that before. And there's a long pause. And she says, well, maybe there's a reason nobody's done that before, Bob. And I'm like, no, no. This will work. It'll be a drow ranger. It'll be, it'll be cool. And I was thinking of the Fafford and Mouser 
with Wolfgar and mm-hmm. this guy. You know, I was thinking of this Fafford Mouse because I love Fritz Leiber. He's, he's like fabulous. Every, everybody listening to this, if you haven't read Fritz Leiber's Lankmar novellas, they're mostly novellas, with Fafford and the Grey Mouser, go get them and read them immediately. They're yes. some of the best fantasy ever written. Some of the best fantasy ever written is Fritz Leiber. So anyway, let me, it's going on. Um, she said, after a while, she said, okay, well, since it's a secondary character, we'll let you get away with it. What's his name? And off the top of my head, I said, Dritz the Warden of Dermon de Chesbrenon, the Ninth House of Menzo Berenzon. And I had no idea what I was saying. <laughs> I didn't know what this Dermon de Chesbrenon thing was or what a Menzo Berenzon might be or why Dritz the Warden. Where did that come from? And she let me get away with it, though. We didn't have time for her to argue with me. She had to go into a meeting immediately with that information. So I started writing the Crystal Shard in the first scene I was writing had him running across the tundra where he gets ambushed by some yetis. And I just knew. Like on page two, I knew. This was his book. This wasn't Wolfgar's book. Uh, I don't know why. I don't know how any of that happened. It just happened. And I'm really glad it did because it's been a heck of a ride. Excellent. Yeah, he's he's got a lot of layers to him, but um, since then he's, he's traveled all over Neverwinter. Um, He's, uh, he's been a pirate. He's, uh, battled orcs, armies and armies of orcs. He's uh, had a long and eventful life. Yeah. Yeah. And now he's the, for- he's the forest gump of the, uh, forgotten realms. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> now the, uh, the timeline jumped forward ahead when, uh, when wizards converted over to fourth edition, um, and uh, so how old is, is Drist now? He's close. Uh, he may have just passed 200. They're around 200. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Karen's Claw, what, exactly what is this, this sword that is so important? If you want to well, it's another reason. The, the, the change, the spell plague, and the, the advent of shadow, I, I like to call it, when a, the two worlds collided in the realms and they... That was all done in-house. That was, that was all their determination to advance the storyline 100 years and all of that. And I had to go along with it, obviously. I mean, it's their sandbox. And, and I want to keep playing in it. <laughs> so the, that, one of the big events of all of that was the return of the Netheral Empire. And the Netherese are known for creating pretty fabulous weapons and artifacts. And, and Karen's Claw is one of them. And it's a sentient blade of extreme power, extreme malevolence, and can telepathically, you know, weave its insidious way into the hands of its, into the mind of its wielder. Mm-hmm. And in in this series earlier, in the earlier books, it was wielded by a a, a very favored villain of my books named Adamus Entreri. Who and and basically in in Dungeons and Dragons lore and many other, fan, it's like a fantasy trope, I guess. If if you're wielding such a sword, you just have to be stronger of willpower than the sword. Well, Entreri was or thought he was, and so the sword's got quite a history in my books. That I'm not. I'm trying not to give anything away here, <laughs> and um, it's kind of. It's now in a position of causing great 
problems for one of Dritz's companions in this book, and they got to get rid of it. And that's not an easy thing to do. Excellent. Yeah. And it even it will even work its wiles on Dritz a little bit too. Yes, that was that was really an entertaining part of the book. Uh, the, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, the sword of appeared all the way back in Servant of the Shard. Right. And uh, and uh, so it's it's nice to see this. It sort of carry over. I like when in your books when things appear much earlier. And they're important, but they don't, they don't seem as, as important as they appear later on. That kind of makes you think I've got this master plan, huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't. But it, <laughs> I like it when that happens, too. Um, you know, I mean, you, you referenced Servant of the Shard, right? That was the return of the Crystal Shard. Yeah. Which actually will make another appearance in the Ghost King. Excellent. So, um, yeah, I, I like doing that, too. I, I like... Um, if you, if you can tie again, you know when I talked about earlier about these books being kind of this wistful, nostalgic lifeline to a simpler time in gaming. Um, if you can do that, you can refer back to the earlier books in ways that make sense to the current story. You're just reinforcing that, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I love doing that. Yeah. Now what's uh, what's next for Drist after after Karen's Claw? Without you know. Revealing spoilers for a book that's not coming out for another nine months. Um, well, you know, I mean, I think the book in March is going to shock a lot of people. I mm-hmm. think it's um, it's got a lot of surprising twists and turns in it. Uh, but really, what's I can't talk too much about what's coming up. But you know, D and D next is coming out mm-hmm. soon, and with the, every change in the game format. Remember, I started writing these books in first edition Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. We're now coming up on essentially five and a half, really, when you think about it, because you had first, second, third, three point five, fourth, and now D and D next. So it's like five. This is this is the we've changed four four significant times. Mm-hmm. But whenever that happens, it affects the Forgotten Realms. And and for all of us authors who don't work at Wizards of the Coast. Um, that usually happens one of two ways. Either they bring us in and they show us what they're doing and tell us what we're going to like. You know, they ask for some feedback, but it's really a fait accompli by then, mm-hmm. which would be D&D 4th edition changes to the realms. Um, or they bring us in at the very beginning and they ask us to be part of the creative process to figure out where and why we want to take the realms in a certain place. Which is what's going on now. Okay. Excellent. So I am, I am, while I can't give you any specifics, I can tell you that I'm really excited about this. This is, um, they're doing everything right this time in terms of making the Forgotten Realms what we need it to be for all the authors and all the game designers. And mostly, and most importantly, for the players and the readers. Um, I believe that. So I'm, I'm having an, I'm having a wonderful time with this. Mm -hmm. And, when I I can tell you that I have to I'm writing six more books in the realms under the contract I'm under now. So I have a lot more books to write. Mm-hmm. But when I say I'm writing Dritz books or realms books, they're realms books. And Dritz may or may not be around or be in them. Mm-hmm. I'm just gonna leave it at that. Excellent. Now when you create new new things for the realms, 
Um, I imagine you have to sort of go through an approval process from wizards um, for some things. Like, for example, back in the day, you you created Mezzo Baranzan, um, right. which previously was not an established part, but now is so intricately tied to to the realms. Um, how does that um, how does that go about? Do you, as you're writing, have a a list of things that they need to keep an eye out for for new things no, that you want to it's, include? Or? It's different every time. Yeah. Because, like, for example, the reference you gave, I had finished the Halfling's Gem, mm-hmm. and I thought that the next book, the fourth book, because that was the third book of the Icewind Dale Children, was the third book I had written in the realms was the Halfling's Gem. And when I finished it, I had thought the fourth book would be the war to reclaim Mithril Hall from the Grey Dwarves. Mm. And then um, TSR, it was TSR back then, not Wizards. This was before Wizards. Said, um, you know, we think people are done with these characters. And, you know, why don't we go on to something different? So tie this story up in the epilogue, which I did. In the Halfling's Gem, the epilogue of the Halfling's Gem just details very briefly how the Dwarves reclaim Mithril Hall. And we were going to go on to something different. And so, you know, I was doing a book a year then, and I was working full-time um, at a, as a financial specialist. How about that? <laughs> and so I had, we had a couple of months to try and figure out what I was going to come up with next. I was, I was going to get back to them on, on where I wanted to go in the realms with my next stories, new characters, all of that. And something really weird happened, and they, got, they were getting flooded with mail. About and when they would go to conventions that from the from the readers who wanted to know where this dark elf had come from and who was this guy, mm-hmm. and so they got back to me and said, you know, we really would like you to detail the next. We're going to go back to these characters, but we want you to do a prequel series. We want you to tell where this drow came from because the readers just loving them. Mm-hmm. And and I remember that you know at the time I I had the old modules. Those wonderful modules following the giant series of yeah. Descent to the Depths of the Earth, The Queen of the Demon Web Pits, Vault of the Drow. And the only thing that I had had just come out was in the Fiend folio. There was a one-page entry on Dark Elves. That was it. That was all I had. <laughs> so I called up I called up my editors at Wizards, and, I mean at, at TSR, and I said, you know, this is what I've got. What else have you got for me? Um, and they said, nothing. That's it. And I'm like, well, what do you want me to do? And they said, well, you've got carte blanche to create the Drow Society in the Forgotten Realms. And they just they just let me run. And so honestly, what I based it on was Mario Puzo's The Godfather. Yes. Um, I can actually really, I can see that. Yeah, that was, you know, it's one of my favorite books. It's a wonderful book. And the movie was, of course, considered one of the greatest movies of all time. The book's even better. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's actually so, one of my favorite books, too. So, you know, I was able to, they gave me carte blanche. Now, with, for example, Neverwinter, what happened was they called me up, um, just to give you another example of, of and a different way it worked, they called me up when I was, um, I was finishing up transitions, and they, and they say, hey, Bob, are you going to be anywhere near Neverwinter when... You know, you go continue on with your series, and I and I looked at the map, and I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, I'm often in that area because Luskin is just north of there, and I always go to Luskin, and Icewind Dale is north of that, and I'm always there, and the crags are there, and I was actually I was going back to the crags because I knew the next book was going to be about Gauntlegrim, which is in, I always had planned to put in that area, 
So I, I said, sure, I'll be in that area. And they said, well, we've got a computer game coming out for Neverwinter, and we've got to kind of redefine the region, and can you help us out with that? Mm-hmm. And so I, f- I flew out to Wizards, and Cryptic Studios was there, and the game team from Wizards was there, and we all sat around the table, and we just talked about what they needed me to do. And then I came up with a storyline that would be able, where I would be able to accomplish those things. So it was, the book wasn't collaborative, but certain events in the book were I was asked to do to set the world up. Yeah. And um, so it works in many different ways. When I wrote The Thousand Orcs, they they wanted me to please do more that ties in with the realms as a whole because you're too busy. I, I, I spend a lot of time hiding away in little corners of the realms to so I'm not stepping on toes of the game designers and the other writers because we're too far apart. Yeah. And But they asked me to come out and, you know, so I took my campaign source book and I said, well, can I use this guy, King O'Bull, Many Arrows, the orc? Yeah, that'd be great, you know. And so there is a lot of collaboration going back and forth. And that's when shared world fiction works best. Yeah. yeah absolutely. So it's different every time, but the basic premise is to try to give the author as much creativity and creative control as possible as long as he can put in the Easter eggs or she can put in the Easter eggs you need for other products. Yeah. Now, do, when, you, when you're writing, do you do you have the characters, do you keep the, the, the rules mechanics in mind at all? Like I imagine oh, you, you'd have to a bit, at least with magic. To. Particularly with magic. Yes, you have to do that. Um, it's and it, it's really hard. I mean, it, it, the hardest part is when you know a lot of people are coming to the books now, so they're reading the Crystal Shard now, mm-hmm. and they don't. A lot of the readers, the younger readers, have no concept of what first edition Dungeons and Dragons was. Yeah, the rules, the magic, the way it worked, what the monsters were. I mean, if you look at a if you look at a white dragon in first edition, it was nothing like what you see as a white dragon now. Mm-hmm. So when they read that scene with Dritz and Wolfgar fighting Icing Death, they they have no – it doesn't resonate as much unless they understand what the game used to be. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so one thing I – one of the things I did in Neverwinter in the second book is I had a battle scene with a warlock and and um, and a, uh, a rogue in the forest against three warriors and – and I had the, actually had the deck of cards from 4th edition for the Warlock there because I wanted to write an anatomically correct 4th edition battle, and it almost killed me. <laughs> it, is, it is incredibly hard to take 4th edition and put it into prose. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you have, to, you have to understand the rules. You have to know what's going on around you in the, in the world, at least to some extent. I don't get into all the minutia and the detail in the realms that would kill me trying to keep up. Yeah. But you have to understand the, the broad strokes of the realms and you have to understand how magic works. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, is there anything else you'd like to uh to say to the readers besides go pick up Karen's Claw as soon as it's available? Sure. Um you know, Karen's Claw comes out on the seventh of August and well, my next release is actually in October of this year. The Stone of Tomorrow books that I wrote with my son Gino have all been put together in one omnibus um, collector's edition, if you will, or compendium edition, if you will. And um, that'll be out in October. Excellent. 
and we'll be doing um, we'll be doing an e-signing for that one as well at rasalvatore.com. You can buy the book and get it signed and personalized. And we'll probably have uh, Karen's Clar up again as well for people who missed that e-signing. Mm-hmm. Um, the March is my next is the next going forward Nudritz book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's called The Last Threshold. Uh, other than that, um, we just, you know, we did that one. My son and I did that comic series for IDW about um, called Neverwinter Tales, the, the Dritz comic series that's now out in a um, graphic novel format. Excellent. And I think, well, I think we'll be doing some more of those. Yeah, it worked out really well. We had a lot of fun. So IDW and and the two of us are, are trying to get together and come up with some more Dritz comic tales, which is very cool. Um, other than that, that's right now I am totally immersed in the realms and, and what's going on. And I'm not working on anything outside of the realms probably for the next year. And you've got six more books from that, right? Well, six more books under for the, the contract, contract. Yeah. But, you know, that'll be a few years from now. I'm sure we'll be signing for more. I hope so anyway. Excellent. I love playing in the realms. Ed Greenwood created something really amazing there. Yes, he did. All right. Well, I think that's about it. We're running out of time. So thank you very much for uh, taking the time. My pleasure, Mark. Thanks. Okay. Bye now. Bye. And before we move into the other interview, let's mention our sponsor for the episode, Continue Magazine. Mark, have you had a chance to check out the latest issue of Continue? I have. I really liked it. There's a lot of great articles in there. There are a lot of good articles in there. Um, I'm, I'm very pleased with sort of the direction the, the – um... The magazine is going. It's only on issue two, but it, it's uh, maturing quickly. Uh, I've mentioned some of the articles before, like the the one about rogues from all types of games, uh, the one about relationships I've discussed. Uh, but I, this time I wanted to highlight the article by friend of the show, Phil Menard. Uh, he wrote a great article about DMing games at conventions and how that sort of changes the social dynamic and, and changes the experience you might have as a DM. And since Gen Con is coming up, I thought that one was worth checking out. Check it out at continuemag.com, and when we come back after the ad, the second interview with Ari Salvatore. For entire generations of people now, gaming is as much a part of the fabric of their reality as television, films, books, music, and any other form of entertainment medium. Continue is a magazine for the gaming community, the global gaming community. Not just video and computer games, but board games, card games, role-playing games, alternate reality games, and anything that falls into the category of humans engaging to have fun. A celebration of gaming. Everything we love about this mad entertainment sector. Continue Magazine at www.continuemag.com. And I am here now with New York Times, New York Times best-selling author, uh, with well over 20 books about Driss, arguably the most famous D&D character of all time to his name. Ladies and gentlemen, R.A. Salvatore, welcome back to the show, sir. Good to be back. Now, your latest book or upcoming book, depending on when this comes out, is Karen's Claw. Yes. Uh, being as concrete or esoteric as you want, what is Karen's Claw about? Well, the whole series, the Neverwinter series, has been about a journey that, that Dritz is taking in his heart. And what, what's happened is for all of his life, he had friends he could count on, friends who shared his values and his morals. And all of a sudden, he's through the circumstance and in no small part because of his own vulnerability, 
he's found himself surrounded by people who not only wouldn't take an arrow aimed for him, but would pull him in front of the arrow aimed for them. And so with everything that's been going on, the, the loss of dear friends, the changes in the world, the darkness in the world that has come about, and some other interesting things that he's encountered along the way, like highwaymen right out of Les Miserables, if you will, where, you know, they're, they're sure they're outlaws and they're highwaymen, but if they're not doing that, they're starving because they've been forsaken by the societal structures that Dritz fought for all his life. Because of all of these things, he's real, the entire ground under his feet's been shaken. And so, you know, that's what the book is really about, is, is him trying to come to terms with where he is, who he is, and where he goes from here. Very good. And and the whole um, – it, it almost feels like a, a constant journey that never really is going to come to an end, right? It, it, it's sort of the journey of life that things are, things are always being thrown at you and changing. I don't know if I mentioned this last year, but one of the things that happened here for me over the last couple of years, when I was doing the collected stories – of um of Dritz Stewart and of the legend of Dritz, you know, it was all the short stories I had written in the Forgotten Realms. I had to go back and annotate them and you know talk about what I was thinking, what I was trying to accomplish with this story or that. Um, it occurred to me then, and I think it was really an epiphany, that what I'm doing here, you know, this career, if you will, is actually my own life journey. And it, these books and you know all the books I write are vehicles for me to ask questions of myself. And when I look at it that way, um, yeah, Dritz is constantly changing. He's, he's constantly seeing things in a different light because I am. And so, yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. He, he, it is, it has been going on forever. He's always questioning, always trying to find a better way. He's always striving to be better or to even figure out what being better means in this case. And yeah, that's, you know, that's me. That, that, that's my life's journey. So are you trying to say that in the last few years, you've kind of fallen in with a rough crowd? Oh, um, <laughs> I wouldn't put it that way, oh, but okay. <laughs> no, this, this book, what's happened to the Dritz? I mean, everybody has friends, you know, particularly like when you're in high school who get in with the wrong people. And so the question becomes, you know, does does he bring them up to his level or do they drag him down? Mm-hmm. Or does he escape or do they kill each other? Yeah, and you've, you had previously um, talked about how you – at least in previous books, you felt like Dritz was, was being changed by his companions. Um, in this book, it becomes very clear that he all along has had this underlying hope and he admits that he's had this hope of redeeming – his companions, in this case, Dahlia and Entreri. Um And he, he's coming off a bit more uh, stalwart in who he is and a little, a little more unchanged by all of his, uh, his companions. But those two things aren't mutually exclusive either because he could be becoming more stalwart and convincing himself of something and yet maybe it's not going the way he thinks it's going. So, you know, I, I think we're a long way from resolution. As a matter of fact, I've already finished the next book which is coming out next year in March. And that book is going to be the fourth book of Neverwinter. We've added one hmm. because it fits in with this theme. And, and it really, I'll tell you, there's a lot of surprises coming up. I was surprised writing it. That's usually a good sign. Okay. 
But uh, yeah, you know, to get back to the original point of that, he is in this book. We see him digging in his heels a little bit more uh, for right and wrong. But there's also, I, I mean, have you had a chance to look through the book? And you, I, you I finished it the other day. Oh, good. Okay, good. Um, without spoiling anything, you see that there are complications to that journey. There are feelings that are cropping up with him regarding a couple of his companions that can only complicate his desire to, you know, walk the straight and narrow. Mm-hmm. And I also found it interesting um, in previous stories and previous books, uh, he had been given advice of, you know, how do you sort of live your life when you live so long? Uh, and, and the advice was sort of uh, break your your long lifetime up into smaller lives. Yep. And Elvindel told him that in the lone drow, what it is to be an elf, right? Live, right. You're going to be, if you're going to be associating with the shorter lived races, you have to be able to reinvent yourself right. as they pass away. And so I've, I've, I've felt like for the last several books, Drizzt has um, been very much focused on figuring out who he is now. Whereas in this book, I saw him looking backwards a lot more. And reminiscing more and, and trying to get back to that place that he was with his old companions. You're a good reader. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to deny that. It is, it, it, this is the battle, right? This is the battle. I mean, Dahlia is kind of the symbol of the battle. She is someone that Dritz is undeniably attracted to. She's sexy. She's mysterious. She's dangerous. She's a bad girl. She's, you know, she she can really turn him upside down and around the corner. He he and he he can't deny that. He's intrigued. He's attracted. But she ain't Caddy Bree. For whatever that means. And I won't tell you what that means because that's <laughs> what this journey continues to be for Dritz as as to you know, is can he reinvent himself and if he does, what does he lose if he does, or what does he gain if he does? Okay. And this is the conflict really setting itself up in this book where Driss is starting to look back a little bit. And what's the purpose of his life? Was there a purpose? Was it all just folly? All his ideas of community over self? You know, I don't know. Maybe he read Ayn Rand when no one was looking. <laughs> um, but, and that can mess you up pretty badly. So, um, you know, he now he's got to resolve those two things. He's got to figure out was it all folly? Wasn't Ovendil right? Because there's the other side of that, of being able to reinvent yourself, the darker side of that is if you're reinventing yourself and it includes your moral code, your mores and tenets, then your mores and tenets aren't worth anything. So we shall see. It's a dark road ahead. <laughs> and, and one of the things I, what, that really hit me as I was reading this book, because I've read, I think, all of the, the Drist books at this point, um, and, and it never really occurred to me until this book just how much you can't trust the narrator to be correct. Because um, the narrators are oftentimes the characters. You know? Yeah, well, that, that's the concept of unreliable narrator. Right. I mean, if... if if I'm narrating the book as an omniscient third person and I am incorrect, then I'm cheating. Right. And, and you see that sometimes. You know, I, I remember reading one book. It was, a, it was a mystery 
kind of like a murder mystery book, and I, I really enjoyed it. But in there, there was one scene where two of the characters were talking about a third character who was off screen. And inside the head of one of the characters, he was talking about this guy as if this guy wasn't the big bad boss. But he knew this guy was the big bad boss. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of bending the rules of unreliable narrator because it was, an, it was a, a third person kind of overview or, or uh, you were in his head. So he can, he can lie in his words, but he can't lie in his head. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I, the concept of unreliable narrator is actually one that I, I think a lot, of pe- a lot more people miss now than used to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's got to do with the flow of information, the speed people absorb information, the speed people read books, and you know the lack of sophistication a lot of times of reading books. But unreliable narrator is, is a writer's best friend sometimes. Well, and it never became more clear to me um, in, in these stories until it was in this book after um, there, there was a big battle uh, in Neverwinter. A lot of them. <laughs> right. And after sort of everything has sort of calmed down. Uh, and the, the three companions are getting ready to, to leave the city. Um, Drist, I think in that chapter, is the narrator and mentions that, you know, all of these accolades are coming down from, from the people and whatever. And, and, and he says, but Intriri just doesn't care. He's completely emotionless over the whole thing. And then, like, the very next page, Intriri gets crazy mad about the naming of the bridge, which implies very strongly he does care. He just Absolutely. expresses that very differently. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, that that's the fun of it, though. If, if As long as people understand. So many times in the books, people have said, well, wait a minute. He said that this wasn't the case. Well, he said because he didn't think it was the case, but it really was the case. That's why it's unreliable. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, Dritz is um, having a son of a gun time figuring out Entreri because Entreri right now is having a hard time figuring out Entreri. He's become one of the more interesting characters in this whole series for me. Um, didn't really quite know what to expect from him when he when it was revealed that you know who he was and he was back on the stage. I didn't really quite know what to expect from Artemis, and it's been a lot of fun because he is surprising me constantly. Well, and, and this concept of Driss being an unreliable narrator himself um, ties into some other things I noticed in that in this book, there's always this struggle, I guess, with Driss because sometimes you feel like, well, he's extremely experienced. He's been through all of these adventures. He, he really has his head together. He's very wise. He knows what's going on. And then those kinds of moments happen and you realize he, he has no idea what's going on and sometimes Absolutely. he comes off like a real novice. Oh, and emotionally, by the way. Dritz is often a novice, uh, and that's by design. I, I remember Elaine Cunningham was was talking to someone once, and they were talking about how, well, Dritz is just perfect. You know, he can't make any mistakes, and Elaine just burst out laughing and said, he can't do anything right. And and she, I think she went, she referred back to, um, you know, the way he completely missed it with Caddy Bree early on, mm-hmm. the way he. 
completely missed it with Wolfgar later on after that, and then how he completely missed it with his whole companions and went back to the Dark Elf City because he was afraid that staying there would bring danger to them. Emotionally, Dritz is – he's not perfect by any means. He has – he makes mistakes all the time. Yeah, and I think I, I think I didn't notice it when I first started reading Dritz novels because I was you know, 13, 14 years old at the time. Um, and I think maybe as I've become a more mature reader, I've picked up on more of these themes that make me wonder what I've missed all along, you know? Well, good. <laughs> so. No, I, the thing is, the books are purposely written to work on several different levels, right? Um, you can read the Dritz books just for a rollicking adventure and fight scenes. And I have no problem with that. You can read them just for information in the Forgotten Realms if, you, if the realms are your thing. And I have no problem with that. But I think there's, I think there's a lot more there. I think a lot of readers might miss it uh, if they're not looking for it. But So every now and then I try to hit people over the head with it and say uh, – like when Dritz, for example, vowed that he would never kill another Dark Elf. And then the Dark Elves attacked Mithra Hall and he realized what a racist comment that was. <laughs> You know, I'll kill a dwarf, I'll kill a human if I have to, I'll kill this, a halfling, I'll kill an elf, you know, whatever, if I have to in battle, but I wouldn't kill a drow. Does that make me any less racist? And, um, you know, so he made, that was like obvious mistakes that I throw out there every now and then. Um, but really, emotionally, this guy is far from perfect. He, he's, and I think everybody is, by the way. Um, far from perfect emotionally. We all have our demons and our and our foibles and our operating system that maybe has some viruses that we don't know about. And certainly Dritz does. I mean, in terms of, of love and he's a child. He's a teenage boy half the time. And, you know, Dahlia's preying on that because that's what Dahlia preys on. Mm-hmm. Although she's not, she's younger than him significantly, isn't she? Oh, she's only like 30 years old. She's yeah. a kid in Elven standards. She's also borderline insane, which makes her very interesting sometimes. So you mentioned um, the idea of, of the lore and the things of, of the setting that come out here a little bit. And I wanted to ask you some questions about that. Okay. First of all, um, there are n- never winter. And the region of, around Neverwinter has become sort of a, a flashpoint for what a lot of is coming out from Wizard of the Coast lately, the last few years. Yeah. Um, and there, in fact, there were other novels written in the city of Neverwinter in between the novels that, that you wrote. And I'm kind of curious, uh, did you, how or how much did you collaborate with the other authors who were sort of telling stories in that region to try to get a similar vision for what was going on? I honestly didn't know about it until the books were out. Okay. And probably by design because what I was doing time-wise, I am further back in time with these books than what was going on there. I I really set the stage for the rebuilding of Neverwinter, the reinvention of Neverwinter mm-hmm. for the computer game. Right. And so I'm about 20 years – 17 years to 20 years behind the other books 
Okay. That were being set in there. They they were going to be more concerned with the things that were going on more immediate to the game. So I couldn't be bothered with that uh. because that would that would like completely mess up. When when you're that's a dangerous amount of time. When you're ten years away from something, it sounds like you're almost there, but ten years is a long time. Mm-hmm. So it would have been dangerous for me to be involved in that. Basically. My job was to put the city in a place so that when the game comes out, it would make sense that that's where they are from where they came from in the books. Okay. So um, I was specifically thinking of Brimstone Angels by Aaron Evans. On my must-read list, and I haven't read it yet. Okay. And and so you're saying that that all all the Neverwinter books that you've written so far are happening about 10 years before before Brimstone Angels would have taken place? I'm not sure about that one in okay. particular. Is Aranika in that book? Who? Aranika, the succubus? Uh, yes. Or is it her sister? Uh, Arunika's in there, or Aranika's in there. Um, and it deals uh, at one point, and, and the, the priest is in there too. The one that deals with the Aboleths. Okay. I, his name escapes me at the moment. Um, and, and, play, and they play some... Uh, uh, the succubus isn't, doesn't play a huge role, but there's another um, – is it a succubus or an Irenes that plays uh, a, a – A succubus. Okay. That plays a well, pretty – Well, she's a succubus anyway. You know, I, I do remember now when, when I was writing my book, there were a couple of times when the editor – Nina has had edited both of those books. Okay. Nina – and she's fabulous by the way. Nina did come to me and say, can you do X, Y, and Z instead because of what's going on in Aaron's book later? Okay. So that was there was there was indirect, but both books were being written at the same time, and it's really hard when you're doing that to be bouncing ideas back and forth if you're in different time frames. Sure. So basically, Nina's job was, I guess, to see what Aaron was doing, see what I was doing, and making sure that it fit. It made sense and fit. Right. Okay. Yeah, I, I was just curious on the timeline because in her book, the Abolithic sovereignty is still a player in the region. And by Karin's Claw, their influence is waning. Well, the question is, are they still a player or are they a player again? Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, Now, this book is being sort of billed as um, part of Wizards of the Coast's big Summer of the Underdark. Yeah. And the previous book was, uh, was launched sort of in this large event, these large events centered around uh, Neverwinter. Right. Uh, and I'm kind of curious, um, how much influence does Wizards of the Coast have um, on what goes into your books, you know, what villains appear and who, who, what, what regions to go into and that kind of stuff? Um, or do they instead look at what you're doing and then see if they can tailor an event to match that? A little of both. I mean, they don't... Wizards doesn't tell me what to write, which is nice. But... I'm part of a team, which is nice. And so if um, things are going on around where I am, they will tell me. I mean, it goes right back to the whole Neverwinter series. The way this whole thing came about was I had just finished – I was finishing up the transition series before this. And I got a call from Wizards and they said, Bob, are you going to be anywhere near Neverwinter in your next series? And I I thought about it for a little bit and I said, yeah, I think I am because I knew that – I knew that one of the things in the in the series was going to be Driss and Bruno going to look for Gauntelgrim because Bruno was going to abdicate and all of that. Mm-hmm. So I expected to be in the crags in that area, you know, Luskin, 
Neverwinter, up to Icewind Dale, all of that. And I said, sure. And they said, well, we've got the, the Neverwinter Nights 3 computer games coming out, and there's some things we want to do in that region. I, can you incorporate them? Can we make it work? Or do you want to like go somewhere else? And so we had a big meeting. And at the meeting is, is when we, I decided that, yeah, this is a great idea for me. And they said, yeah, this is a great idea for us. So it, it, there's really no like it, – it's more a back and forth of suggestion. Mm-hmm. But if I had said I don't want anything to do with this, I'm going to go rebuild Chedna Sad on the other side of the world. Wizards would let me. Sure. Um, and – there are things like, for example, when I was writing these books, there were several characters that were suggested to me as being kind of cool characters in the area that I might want to look at. Um, Saz Tam, for example, was I had nothing to do with Saz Tam or any of the products involving him or any of the lore involving him, but it made sense that he might make a, this kind of appearance somewhat off stage. I wasn't going to try to bring him in as a major player, but Salora was somebody else's creation in the, in the product, but she wasn't very well-defined. So hmm. she became part of the book. And then, of course, the couple of the characters there, like um, Aronica, Aronica or Aronica, whatever. And then I had characters of mine from the earlier, from the Pirate King and Valindra and Arklam Grief that I wanted to put in. And so it all kind of blends together and works together well. And it got to the point where... You know, as I'm telling the story, I know the story I need to tell. I know the purpose of the book, the cake, if you will. And what I'm doing in, with by adding the Neverwinter stuff is putting the icing on the cake. And I don't care whether that icing is red or blue or whatever. It's the cake I care about. And the cake was Dritt's journey with bad guys suddenly and mm-hmm. his vulnerability. So there were several characters floating around as I was finishing the book that I could have either killed or let live. It didn't matter to the main story. Because I was going on from there. And as that came up with these characters, I would tell Wizards of the Coast and they would go to Cryptic and I'd say, look, I got a really cool villain. Here here he is or she is. Here's the layout, what's going on with them and what they are capable of. If you want, I can let this person live and you can have fun with it in the game. Or if you want her out of the way or him out of the way, I can kill him. Or I can just let it go at the end of the book and will assume in the intervening years something happened to them. So there was this great back and forth going on. That's when Shared World is fun. Mm-hmm. And I was curious, uh, this summer specifically, being sort of the summer of the Underdark, and you happen to have brought in uh, Drow as a villain, which haven't been a major villain for Driss for, for some time now. Um, was, was that part of that process? Yeah, actually they told me that um, one of the things that was going to happen is, you know, the Oh, yeah, there's a drow house that's interested in Gontelgrim. And I was like, oh, oh, good, good. Let's have some fun. And so I got to have fun with that. I mean, I was, I was, it occurred to me when they said that how long it had been since I had had any meaningful interaction with Menzo Baranzan. And I missed the place. And I want to go back there sometime. So this is kind of a lead in to introduce some new drow characters who will show up in further books down the road and maybe. Uh, kind of a prelude to me getting back to Menzo Baranzan sometime in the future, which I hope mm-hmm. to do. Uh, one of the major villainous organizations uh, in the last several books has been the Empire of Netheril. Yes. And I'm kind of curious about what, what's your vision of what the Empire of Netheril is and, and how it works and all that? Oh, Lord. You know, wrong person to ask for that. <laughs> I keep 
this whole Shadowfell, Abiatoral change in the Forgotten Realms, um, I haven't been very involved in that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, because I had so much work to do to just try to figure out how to resolve the hundred year leap with my my characters. And you know, who would make it, who wouldn't, and how would they make it? That I really I am not the expert on the sure. Shadowfell. I always see them as kind of a, you know, your typical, not xenophobe, um, arrogant, uh, domineering, and, you know, inhabitants of the Shadowfell. And now that the gates are open again, they get to go play. And so they're, they're you know... I always treated him kind of like the same way I treated the Githyanki or the Githyanki in the old D&D games. You know, the the out the otherworldly but really, you know, humanoid, human-like um who get a chance to show up on the prime material plane uh, in Toril and Faerun whatever and just cause havoc and and try to dominate. Um Somewhat alien invaders, somewhat would have fit in anyway, and that, that's how I've seen them from the beginning. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, they are very similar in traits. If, if you look at some of the things they ascribe to them, and which makes sense to this book, um, you know, if I always use the get the Yankee in in my old campaigns because somebody will get a really cool sword, and then they'll find out it's a get the Yankee sword when all the get the Yankee show up to get it back because <laughs> that's what get the Yankee do. Netherese, the Netherese do the same thing. Mm. So when when Karen's claw became revealed as a Netherese sword in in one of the short stories I wrote, it you know it, it makes sense. They covet their items. They're they're alien. They're arrogant. They have their own kind of way of things. But they're not that foreign if you really look at them from the inside. If sure. that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and you know I'm... I I get I get so mixed up on Shadowfire and Shades and Netherese and. The sure. Shade Enclave and well, I was I was a little stuff. I was a little curious because your take uh, does come off a little bit different than than some of the other things that have been written about him. So I just want want to sort of see where you, where you were coming from. I wouldn't doubt that um, the idea that I'm up to date on the stuff that's been put out in the last couple of years is laughable. Sure, and it's it's really I mean it's just they've overwhelmed me. Mm-hmm. Now there is a big story hinted at and alluded to between Intriri and Jarl Axel and what happened there. Um, is there ever a chance that we're going to find out what that story is? I mean, we, we know as much as Jarl Axel sold Intriri into slavery and that's how he ended up with the, the, the Netherese, but... No, you know that Intriri said Jarl Axel Well, sold. right. <laughs> Remember that narrator thing? Uh-huh. Um, yes, you're going to find out much more about that. Okay. There's a lot to tell there. Well, not a lot to tell, but there's an interesting twist there. And, and Jarl Axel, you know, Jarl Axel and Trary are two characters I expect to see a lot of. Yeah. So, yeah, that will be ironed out in the, in the near future. In the near future. Okay. Um, now, you did, uh, in, in this series with Dahlia, use a... I would guess some to some people would would interpret it as a controversial storytelling element with rape, and I'm and I'm curious if there's been any blowback from that. 
Um, I think that the reactions to Dahlia have been all over the place. Um, you know, she's a murderess. She's a victim. She's a, you know, she, she killed her child. She, you know, it's been all over the place with her. Dahlia is a, is a horribly scarred, uh, you know, borderline insane, uh, former good hearted, but broken person. I mean, she chooses her lovers hoping she can find one that'll be skilled enough to kill her when they break up as they inevitably will, because who could ever really love her? Right. Um, that's, that's her, that's her take on it. You, when you understand that about Dahlia, that, that she's, you know, she'll, she'll use anything she can to gain advantage but in the end, when she's she's taking lovers, whether it's the the diamonds already on her left ear or, or dreads, what she's got in mind is that nobody can actually really love her, and they'll fi- figure that out soon enough. They can't love her because of what she did, because of the that, that horrible guilt that she's carrying around, and because she's just an awful person for doing that. So. You know, eventually they're going to break up, and when they break up, she's going to have to fight them, and she wants one that's good enough to kill her because that's how she thinks she should die. That's pretty messed up. Mm-hmm. And if you if you start with that with Dahlia, everything else almost seems sane by comparison. And it's interesting that you say that she that she's doing a lot of this because she's carrying that guilt, which implies that she's remorseful and could be redeemable. It does imply that, doesn't it? <laughs> I also would point out, however, that you will, you know, even whatever the reason for what you're doing, um, for your actions, whatever the reasons for your actions, it is possible to go so far over the line that even if in your heart the scar can be healed you are you remain irredeemable from a societal standpoint sure so that's the dilemma you know mm-hmm. where is she on that scale where's intrary on that scale by the way so is there going to be a time in the near future that we have a a female character that isn't a villain of some sort um well i don't I, yeah absolutely <laughs> and in um Ambergris feels like, like she might book, be head that actually. way. There's one in there's one in Karen's Claw. Who's that? Who am I missing? Amber Gristle O'Mall. Yeah, I, I just I, I was just talking over you. I mentioned her. It looks like she could um, she could turn that way. She also feels a little bit power hungry. Otherwise, why would she be with the Shades to begin with? Uh, she was there for a reason. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I, I sort of the impression I got was that she was there because there was a, a, an opportunity. For, for something that she wanted there, but then her dwarvenness was more important to her than her uh, her own ambitions. No, That's she was – no, she okay. was put there. OK. For a reason. OK. So she's really – um, But she, she's not – I wouldn't call her good, um, but she's certainly not a villain. OK. Excellent. She's a lot of fun. Well, I, she's, she's a character that was intriguing and I want to see where she goes from here. And you will. Good. 
in major way. And if nothing else, I like having a cleric in the party because, you know, it's a D&D group and we need to have a well-rounded party. <laughs> Somebody has to play the cleric. She was the last one to show up to the table. Yeah. <laughs> hey, guys, I want to play. What do you need? You're a cleric. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I, I, I really um, – you're going to learn a lot more about her in the, in the next book. Okay. I look forward to it. Uh, I've got one more question and then uh, a couple from Twitter if we have some time. Um, sure. And, and the next one I think you've covered, hit a little bit on it. I just wanted to ask, you know, what's what's coming up next for Driss? You know, you said there's another book in March. Yep. Uh, any hint as to, as to where that's going and what it's going to cover? Um, the only thing I want to hint at in that is I think that a lot of people are going to be really surprised. And it will cover the there, – there is – at the end of, of Karen's Claw, there are there's an obvious setup mm-hmm. for for what's next regarding Dritz Road. Mm-hmm. Not specifically where he's going to go or what he's going to do, but more than that, you know, the other two books at the end of Gauntlegrim, you knew where they were going next. They were going to kill Solora. They said it. At the end of Neverwinter. You knew where they were going next because Dahlia had figured out that a certain tiefling was around and mm-hmm. she could not could not allow that. Um, at the end of this book, none of that's available. But it, I mean uh, – There's a pretty strong hook. But you pretty much know at the end of this book that I write buddy fantasies. You know, that's the, the Fritz Leiber type of thing, the buddy fantasy story where you're at the group of adventurers. That's kind of completed at the end of this book. And you can see that there, this, this group, this gang, this, uh, this team is, is not going to play nice with each other. Hmm. And so the next book really is going to explore that more deeply. And it's full of surprises. Big surprises. Okay. All the way through. Excellent. Uh, so a couple of questions from Twitter. James Sullivan wants to know uh, if you do any work to sort of keep track of how your characters would work mechanically as D&D characters. I don't. And the reason I don't is because, I mean, I could do that for my game, I suppose, except if I use them in my game, my friends all beat me up. <laughs> um, but I don't because it's always – D&D is a relative experience. And I don't mean you play with your brothers and sisters. I mean that you're if, – if I made Dritz a seventh-level ranger, in some groups that would be godly and other groups that would be a neophyte. So when you do it that way, that you I don't think you can have absolutes. It's a sliding scale. If you're playing in a game where everybody are running around is 20th level this or a 30th level that, then the Dritz character that I put in that book – of detailing his abilities and skills and pluses to hit and feats and all the rest of it, depending on the addition you're doing, um, will be very different in that kind of a group of 20th and 30th level characters and NPCs everywhere than it would be in a person who plays D&D the way I play D&D. If you're playing in my group in D&D and we're, we've been playing for six or seven months, you're probably fifth level. Sure. You know, so because it's a sliding scale, and you can't control the other side of the equation. I find it hard. I mean, if I could do stats, I'd say Dritz should be three levels higher than any character, than the highest level character. 
or something like that. Sure. But you really can't do that because then people get mad. Oh, yeah, well, a munchkin. He is a munchkin. He's a munchkin <laughs> in Baldur's Gate. I tried to kill him. He wiped out my party. Um, I don't have a problem with that. Um, so, no, I, I don't really keep track of that. Now, you mentioned that you're still uh, – you've still got a gaming group. Do you, yes. You, you still play weekly? Well, we took the summer off from playing. We get together and we have cookouts and, and mm-hmm. things like that um, and uh, talk about playing. But we haven't started yet because people can't make it on a regular basis sure. over the summer. Everyone's got kids the wrong age. Plus, I'm going out of town for a few weeks. We have softball games and half of the group plays on the softball team. So right on. What what ver- what version of D and D are you playing? Uh, well, I'm DMing, so we're playing first. Okay. First with a few house rules and a little bit of second thrown in. Okay. Have you checked out D and D next yet? Yes, I have. I finally got just just a couple of weeks ago. I got the uh, I got the packet, mm-hmm. and I checked it out. And yeah, I think they're going in the right direction. Excellent. Uh, one more question from Twitter. Sam Joseph wants to know how you've managed to stay interested in these characters for so long. It's been, what, 25-ish books? 25 years this month is when I started – 25 wow. years ago this month is when I started writing The Crystal Shark. Dritz was born in July of 1987. Um, I, you know, because I look at what I'm doing as a reflection of my personal journey – I better not get tired of it because that was the bad things about me and where I am. I, I don't know how I, I – the other thing I've come to realize about these books and it's so satisfying to me is I, I get a lot of email from people who have been, been with this series for many years, you know, since the, the beginning. And I would say I – would, I would estimate that a significant percentage, maybe 25 percent of my audience, my readership – has been there with me for more than 15 years, mm-hmm. pre-internet. So one of the things I've, I've come to believe about this series, um, or come to recognize, I should say, about this series, is that for a lot of people reading these books, they, they open the new Dritz book and they are immediately transported back in time to that D&D group that they were in in the 1980s. And the fantasy genre has changed a lot since then. The world's changed a lot since then with cell phones and, you know, distraction games like the Zynga games. Um, I call them distraction games because that's what they are. And, you know, with MMOs and single-player games for the computer and all of these things. And there's been a lot gained there's a lot of you know i have nothing bad to say about most of the games i i'm an mmo player and a a single player rpg player on computers as well and all of that i'm not i'm not this isn't the pejorative you've worked in the video game industry but i think we've lost a lot as well i think you lose a lot in terms of you know when i used to play D &D, if somebody got you killed you threw a piece of pizza at them that was part of the fun of it um so I think we've lost. So I think for a lot of people, picking up the next Dritz book is, is like allowing them to go back to college, or to go back to that their, those old friends in their old hometown that they haven't seen in fifteen years. There's a real wistful nostalgia to it at this point after all these years, mm-hmm. and that's a good thing. That's a good. It, it, it works for me as a writer, and and I don't want to forget the roots of Dritz. I don't want to have 
this thing change so dramatically in tone and, and the way I handle it that it that it becomes unrecognizable as a tie back to those days. Yeah. Although um, some of that nostalgia, I think, is part of the reason that readers like me uh, didn't pick up on some things like how unreliable the narrator is for so long because I just went back. You know, I, every time I'd pick up a Driss book for years, I'd instantly go back to, you know, sitting in biology class my freshman year of high school. And I wasn't in a place at that point where I would recognize those things. Um, and so, I'm, you know, now as if, uh, I, I can start to see some of those things and realize how much of that I probably missed in the intervening years. And there's nothing wrong with that because it makes reading the books over again more fun, right? Sure. You bet. And I mean, look, you know, the other thing is you have to understand something. Um, before you accuse me of brilliance, uh, <laughs> the reader brings as much to a book as the writer does. And so I, I, I always get a little – you know, I, I laugh a little bit when I hear someone saying, oh, those books are just popcorn fantasy. Oh, they're lighthearted and they're just popcorn fantasy. And for some people, they are, and that's fine. But then you go, you know, there was there's this there's this Pakistani philosopher um, Ali Etaraz, who's been on book TV a bunch of times. A brilliant writer, he's a poet. He he did an essay, and you can Google it online, called "I Am a Dark Elf." And he talks about how when he came to America, his father wouldn't let him read anything but the Koran, but he had smuggled in the Tritz books. And he talks about how much he learned about ethics and being able to assimilate and be feeling out of place in a new society and culture through the Dritz books. And then there's another there's another one I go to all the time, which is um, Paul Allen, who is the Paul Goat Allen is the reviewer for Barnes and Noble, has been for years. And he did this this essay on the Tao of Dritz. So at the same time, I've got people thinking that it's just this kind of superficial popcorn fantasy. I've got other people who are talking about life-changing epiphanies and realizations and attitudes that they've gotten from the books. And how can both be true? They can be. And the answer is because the reader brings as much to the experience as the writer does. I will argue that no person in modern time has had more effect on culture than George Lucas. And yet the Star Wars movies, whether it's the original three or the newest ones, can be looked at as trite, as all get up. And yet there are those universal themes and messages are there. They're just maybe buried under some fun frosting. And, and if fun equals trite, then you're missing the point. Because fun is what engages you. Once you're engaged, you are open to more than that. So it's just interesting. I, I have as much fun watching the reactions to the books as other people have reading the books, I guess is what I'm saying. And yeah, I know those things are in there, or at least I tried to put them in there. For some people, they will be in there. For other people, they'll never resonate. You know, for some people, Dritz will be a friend and something they hope to aspire to, and his essays will will resonate. And for other people, he's a preachy, moralizing jerk, uh, Mary Sue character. And all of that can be true. All of that can be true. Because the reader brings as much to the experience as the writer does. And 
you know, if it becomes almost conventional wisdom to put down certain things in, in, in our culture and society. And, you know, um, if you look at the super popular books, the ones that kind of leap beyond, people want to take shots at that. It's, it's not cool to admit you like it. That's why they call it guilty pleasures, right? But the truth of it is that you can get an awful lot out of guilty pleasures if you allow yourself to look deeper than that when you're reading. If you allow yourself to be open to the fact that there might be something more here, that maybe the person writing this book was actually trying to accomplish something or had some knowledge of what he or she was doing. And I remember when I wrote the book Mortalis, which I still think is the best thing I've ever written. I wrote that book when my brother was dying of cancer and he was my best friend in the world. And this book was my catharsis and I've never gone back and reread it because I can't. And I, I sent it to my editor and I said, it was Veronica Chapman over at Del Rey. I said, Veronica, this book is either really good or really self-indulgent and I'm way too close to it to know which. And she called me back about a week later and she was crying on the phone and she said, don't you change a word of this book. And that's unheard of, by the way. And, but I knew it was just one of those moments where the writing was pure because the, the emotions were torn right out of me. And the book went to a, a bunch of reviewers and we, we got really good reviews for the whole of the Demon Wars series. But there were a few who never were ever going to give me a good review because I came from TSR. And none of the TSR authors were ever going to get a good review from this one particular place. And they gave they gave me a pretty good review on that book. It just wasn't glowing, and they and they obviously had missed so much of what we had hoped, or I had hoped as the writer that people would get from the book. And my editor said to me, "I wish I could have sent them this book without your name on it." That was like a gut shot to me. That you know how ridiculous is that? Well, I think uh, that's a good place to, to call this uh, an end with uh, some poignancy like that. So I want to thank you uh, for coming on the show. Always a pleasure. Always and, uh, a pleasure. Thanks for reading the book and uh, getting it. That, that was pretty cool. That, that's you know one of the things we talked about is exactly what I was hoping some people would begin to see in this book. Well, good. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad, I, I, I'm, I'm, glad I'm starting to get it more. So I think that says good things about me. I'm, I'm proud of myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyways, those thanks again. Uh, and we'll uh, see you at Gen Con this year, hopefully. I will be there. All right. All the days. All right. So I think we know everything there is to know about Karen's Claw without actually reading it aloud to the audience. Yeah, I hope everyone enjoyed it. And we want to thank our sponsor, Continuum Magazine, as well as Ari Salvatore for talking about it to each of us. If you want to get a hold of The Tome Show, shoot me an email at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Call the biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME and swing by the website, thetomeshow.com, for links and show notes. And you can find more from me, the Dice Monkey, over at dicemonkey.net. And also, you can leave me voicemails at the Tome's Biz line, asking for Dice Monkey's advice, still at 919-BIZ-TOME. And that has been a special Tome Show. And Dice Monkey Radio episode with R.A. Salvatore talking about Karen's Claw. Of?
ございます。わー。